you know, I do a number of different flavors of talks here. Uh, what I'd like to do tonight is make up a talk with you, which I like to do. And so I'd like to ask you to consider really a few things. What would you like me to talk about? That's, that helps when we make up a talk together. What, and, and then to consider what would be most vital for you or most interesting for you or what do you feel most passionate about that you would like to hear more of or what's the cutting edge of your practice that you would like me to address or what's the most difficult part of your practice or that you would like me to speak to or what's, uh, you know, what, what do you think would be most challenging for me to talk about if you like that kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm open to anything. And we'll, and then, you know, you'll, I'll take a number of themes and then I'll, I'll do my best to weave a talk based on what you would like to hear. So take a moment and consider, you know, really reflect about what would be most interesting to you. You know, given you've taken a Sunday night and you've come here, you know, what, what do you want? Okay. Um, on desire. What desire. ending of desire? On desire. Oh, great! Wait, my pen's not working. There it is. Desire. Um, something that was talked about the last retreat that I wanted ties into that. The three types. Three types of tanha. I hope I can remember them. Oh yes. Okay. So maybe you'll talk about it. (laughs) 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 Becoming and annihilation. Okay. I had never heard that before. Uh Aha. So yeah. So you're you're. You're translating tanha, this is the Pali word, as desire. Um, a better, maybe a more accurate translation that is used is thirst. And we'll, we'll talk about it when I talk about this. Transformation. Transformation. Okay. Is there any particular kind of transformation or aspect or power? What, what? Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it was going to happen. Yeah. But now, as I look back, you know, like I really see how I changed. Uh huh. Uh huh. So again, maybe I'll have you come talk about this. You know, <laughs> see how. Yeah. So it's about change, and and change for the better. Okay, we'll speak to it. Intention. What do you want to know about intention? Sometimes like, you do something and then you question yourself, what is my intention? Uh-huh, okay. Okay. Oh, wait. Let's go there, yeah. Um, in a more formal way, the Buddhist ritual, I mean, you Buddhist rituals. Any specific areas? Well, more 
like rituals for starting your car, rituals for, I mean, pardon for practice, okay. Okay, to deepen practice, sure. All the way back. Overview of loving kindness. Okay. Let's see. I hear it. Attachment. Attachment. It's related to desire. Okay. Let's see. How about yes. Uh huh. So, so you get attached in relationship. Healthy attachment. Is there is there healthy attachment? No, it's a good question. I'll speak to that. Okay, last one. Yeah. Working with fear and anxiety. That's a scary one. <laughs> Maybe one more. Maybe one more. Let's see here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Challenging with self and others. Okay. Probably enough here. Um, so let's do. Uh, So I'm going to start with Mindy's question about tanha, three tanha. And tanha is often translated as desire or wanting, or uh, a more refined translation is thirst. Um, because actually not all desire is bad. Not all desire is a problem. Not all wanting is bad. But there's a certain quality that is considered difficult, is considered problematic, or will often lead to suffering. And it's, a, it's like when there's a thirst and a, um, a hunger um, in, uh, towards something. And what Mindy asked about specifically were three, three ways that it's talked about, that there's sense desire, that there's a desire to become, and there's a desire for what's called annihilation. And the desire, the thirst, the hunger for sense desire, um, first of all, it's important to put a context around desire um, because it's understood from the Buddhist perspective that really all desire is to seek to be happy. All of our desires are to, so that we'll be happy, so we'll be satisfied in life. Um, 
so that will, you know, the, the, the Dalai Lama says everybody wants to be happy. And really, and underneath all our actions, however misguided, however um, confused they might be, however deluded or uh, ignorant they might be, and by ignorant it means ignoring the consequences of our actions, um, all of our actions, even the worst, if you looked at the worst person, in some way their action is so that they are happy. And, you know, the, what we would consider, you know, people who are really bad or do horrible things, they're, they're um, misguided, they're confused, they're uh, deluded from a Buddhist perspective. But their intention, somebody asked me about that, their intention is to be happy. And they actually think it'll make them happy if they kill somebody or if they hurt somebody. Or on a, on a much less gross level, that we think we'll be happy if we get that iPod or we'll be happy if we get something or that person or that job or that something. And so there's a, there's a thirst that's there. There's a hunger. And the hunger is for happiness. And um, the reason why it's important to give it this context is because then we can start to look very clearly from the Buddha's perspective. And the perspective on desire is not a moralistic perspective. It's not, oh, you're bad if you have lust. That's not, that's not the Buddhist perspective. Or you're, or you're a bad person if you want a lot of money. That's not... That's a moralistic perspective. It's not the Buddhist perspective. The, the Buddhist perspective is based on, on a very simple paradigm. What leads to suffering and what leads to freedom? That, that's the way to analyze your desire. What leads to suffering and what leads to freedom? And so, and so some desires are considered skillful. And some desires are considered unskillful. And you hear, as soon as we, we use that kind of language, we're taking it out of the whole realm of moralism. We're looking at, we're looking at it practically, pragmatically, which is how the Buddha looked at things. He wanted to see what led to freedom, what led to awakening, what led to enlightenment. And what led to suffering? What led to difficulty? What led to distress? And then to begin to see, as we discern that, to follow the desires that lead to freedom and let go of the desires that lead us to suffering. And so that's the practical, pragmatic context in which Buddhism really talks about desire. And then the Buddha would make discernments. He would look at, at what, what happened for himself, because he, he did a lot of desiring. I hope you all know that. Everybody got that clear? It, not only did he do a lot of desiring, he got a lot of getting his desires. Right? He was, a, he was an upper-class, wealthy prince. He, got, he, he had some fun along the way before he realized it wasn't leading him to what he sought. So, um, so, then one, so then some of the discrimination he made was certain kind of desires, like sense desires. That if we, if we just believe that our 
thirst and hunger to keep fulfilling sense desire will lead to freedom, we might be mistaken. And you could all just consider this, just on a practical level. How many sense desires have you had in your life? Right? Like for food, for, you know, whatever it is, for things, for people, for intoxicants, for whatever it is. You've all had a few, right? Have they given you the freedom you seek, the happiness you seek? Because he actually doesn't say sense desire is bad, but we, want to, we, we just want to see it clearly so then, you know, we can fulfill sense desire as we wish, but we may then know that that's not going to give us the freedom we seek or the happiness we seek. It'll give us a temporary happiness generally. You know, the story I love to tell, it's getting old now because my daughter's getting old. When she was about 13, she used to like, she got into like uh, used clothes. She was into, you know, used clothes, which is great for me, you know, as a dad. And, and so I used to go with her to the Buffalo Exchange and, you know, these kind of places. And there was one place in San Francisco, I don't know if it's still here, where they sold clothes by the pound. And it was great. She'd get all these clothes. We'd put them on the scale. I'd pay for it. and We'd go home. And then she'd be putting them on. She's probably about 12, actually. And she'd come out with this t-shirt, and I'd say, oh, it looks great. And then she'd go back, and she'd have on this little dress or something. Oh, it's cool, cool dress. Then she'd come back, she'd have a little jacket on, and then she'd have shown me everything, right? And then she'd say, can we go again? You know, she'd be happy for a, a little while. It was satisfying for a while. But just to see the truth of that, is considered a certain kind of insight into the nature of desire and the fulfilling of desire. It's, it's okay, it's fine, enjoy. Get all the clothes by the pound you want. You know? <laughs> but but don't, don't delude yourself to think that that will bring the happiness that you seek. And when I, I say that, I say you wouldn't be here if there wasn't a certain level of happiness that you're looking for, a certain kind of freedom that you're seeking, a certain kind of um, relationship to reality that is not bound, but is unbound, which is what the Buddha found. And so there's this, this um, um, clinging or desire or thirst for sense desire and then another place the Buddha discriminated uh, desire was the thirst to become, or the hunger to become, to be. And we can we can um, consider this a number of ways. The way mostly I think about it, you know, it's the hunger to become somebody um, in people's eyes. You ever have that feeling like you want to be seen a certain way? All of a sudden we're turning into an idea. And we're not an idea. Human beings are not an idea. There's a living reality here that's quite amazing, quite beautiful, quite mysterious, quite unique. In the, it's considered very unique in the realm of beings. You know, there are all kinds of beings, animal beings and 
in Buddhist cosmology, you know, heavenly beings and beings in hell realms. Well, the human beings are considered quite a unique phenomena because of their capacity to awaken. When, when um, some of my friends like to talk about this becoming, you know, um, uh, as a teacher, they notice the becoming in becoming a teacher and wanting to be seen a certain way. And so we're becoming an image, becoming an idea, becoming an object in relation to then other objects. And so you can hear the thirstness for being seen. We all have it. We all have this thirst. It's not a bad thing. We, we practice being mindful so then we can see this movement in our psychology, really, that begins to posit us as a thing among other things. And, and believe that we need to be seen in a certain way in order to be okay, in order to be whole, in order to be free, in order to be happy. And if you notice, people never really see you the way you want them to see you. Have you ever noticed that? They come close sometimes. Or for a little while they see you and you're great. But then you know what happens when that turns, right? Then they see the other side and they hate you. It's called praise and blame in Buddhism. Um, So there's the desire to become, which is also um, then correlated to the desire for annihilation, which is really the rejection of whatever is here. The rejection of reality in some way. The rejection of whatever experience we're having. The thirst to non-be. It actually, and uh, I'm giving you a, oh, I would rate this at about a seven answer, six or seven. I, I think there's more answer than I know, even, in terms of these three, really refining these three. But I'm, I'm definitely giving you a decent shot at it. Um, um, becoming about identification, yes about becoming someone, about becoming something, really. And it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean you shouldn't become someone in the world or substantial in whatever you do or excel in what you do and be seen for that. It means we don't identify with that as who we are. We see that who we are is much more unsolid than any identification. And one of my teachers once said, any identification is a prison. Any identification is a prison. But I want to make a little, a little caveat here. Because actually, it's very healthy to identify um, to an extent so that we really fulfill our roles and responsibilities and obligations. Excuse me. But to the extent that we believe that's who we are, in essence... That's, that's ignoring reality. That's deluded. That's a, that's a mistake that will lead to suffering. And we see that clearly when we die. It's very clear. Because when you die, there's no identity you can take with you. And so it's one of the great perceptions that death offers us. And maybe we don't have to wait till we die to really get that perception. That there's no identity that's permanent. That we 
we morph actually into a whole variety of identities of child, of teenager, of young adult, middle age, elders. Elder is an identity, it's a, it's a temporary identity. After that, you're free of that identity, right? No, it's true, it's true. I, you know, personally, when my father died, who was 91 when he died, one of the great insights and, and um, oddly enough, delights was like, I realized I had reified him. I had identified him as this old man because he'd been old for a while. And, I, and, and he died and it was like, in my, my mind just released. It was like, oh, he's not an old man anymore. That was an idea of who he was. And we're not an idea. When you're not an idea. This is one of the things I feel very confident saying. You're, you're not an idea. It's one of the beauties of being here with you. I get to see these not, not ideas that are right here. <laughs> so, and then the third is this, is this um, tanha, this desire for annihilation, which is to deny, to cut off, uh, or to uh, extinguish in some way, what is here? And it's actually related generally to fear. It's related to fear, to anxiety, to ideas that we have about what reality is. And we want to cut off from it or push it away or avert. We want to avert from whatever's here. And really, uh, the, the becoming and the annihilation is related to um, um, grasping and aversion. Grasping and aversion. And one we're grasping for something and one we're averting from it. And, and so, so there's the um, um, desire that leads to suffering, and then there's desires that lead to freedom. And these are considered really skillful and worth, worth following. Your desire to come here is an expression of your desire for freedom. You know, I appreciate, you know, you coming, but I'm, I'm not that good, right? really not about me or anything like that, seriously. It's about the Dharma. It's about your own awakening. It's about your own freedom. That's, that's considered a very skillful desire to follow in Buddhism. And then as you practice and as you deepen your practice, certain desires will come. Desire to do longer retreat or desire to um, do service or desire to connect with Sangha. These are all considered skillful desires that will deepen your practice and your movement towards freedom. And then as you're actually practicing, there'll be a desire for more concentration or more quiet or more stillness. Those are considered skillful desires um, to learn how to um, enact. Now, they're, they're also understood as somewhat um, transitional desires like the desire for samadhi or deep concentration is a transitional desire, like a certain peace will come and a certain quiet and it's beautiful. And then you want it. And, and it's good to want it because it, it really clarifies what's called, um, I can't remember the right phrase, 
It's more like um, there's called mundane desire. This is really right out of the old text, but mundane desire and then supra mundane desire. So mundane desire is the ordinary desires. And then supramundane are like the desire for samadhi or concentration or peace or stillness or quiet or uh, one-pointedness in practice. And they're considered very skillful um, to the point where you see there's still some suffering even in those. And then, and then, and they be, and then they even fall away at a certain point. These very skillful desires fall away until there's only one desire. It's called one fortunate attachment. There's a sutta called one fortunate attachment, right? You know, attachment gets a bad name in Buddhism, which I'll speak to in a moment. But there's one fortunate attachment in the teachings, and it's the attachment to total freedom the desire for awakening. And that is considered the supreme desire, the most skillful desire. Why is it considered skillful? Because without it, it won't come. And maybe, maybe one in 500,000 years, I don't know, but not, not too often. But for most of us to actually feel that and then follow it, which is what the Buddha did. The Buddha envisioned the freedom and, and wanted that freedom and he followed his desire all the way to freedom. And it's something that's possible for each and every one of us. But it's radical. It's radical because it means, it's like, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a simple example. I hope it makes it clear. So I was doing some samadhi practice, some deep concentration practice where you just stay with the breath. That's all you do. And every time I would talk to my teacher, who I was calling on the phone, he'd give me about a minute. I'd say what was happening. He'd say, stay with the breathing. And then I called two days later. Here happened this, this, this. Stay with the breathing. Click. And that's what he did every day. He just said, stay with the breathing. Stay with the breathing. And one day I called him up. I said, oh, I see how to do this. I have to let go of everything else but the breathing. He said, right, stay with the breathing. <laughs> but, but I got it. I got it that actually I had to let go of everything else. That I couldn't want any... And there was nothing else to want but to be with the breath. And then at a certain point, even that becomes not so skillful. And the desire for freedom, when, when that fills your soul, really... When that fills your heart, that's very skillful. So desire, let's go. Where was attachment? Let's just go to attachment because I've mentioned it. Um, which is that attachment is considered, um, it's actually quite related to desire um, and, and um, uh, clinging. And it's really the, the, um, at the furthest end of desire and clinging is attachment. Really, and really, we could say attachment and identification. And this is where it gets solidified and reified. And it's, it's a form of suffering, attachment. Why is it a form of suffering? Not because it's bad or not because it's morally wrong. It's because in reality, if you look closely, there's nothing we can hold on to. 
Do you see anything you can hold on to? Really. People, places, scenes, communities, work, homes. It's, it's just not the nature of this world. That, that's just, that, it's a very simple teaching, actually. And so to attach to things will create suffering because the nature of this world is that it's impermanent, it's changing, it's fluid, it's transient. On every level, our thoughts, try to hold on to a thought all day. It, it actually won't stay. You know, try to hold on to a feeling. It won't happen. And let me back up one step. Really, attachment is both grasping and aversion are attachments. Both, gra- both trying to cling to and become or push away and avert are attachments, are forms of attachment. And, um, and yet the question was about healthy attachment. Who asked that? Who? All right, it's a really good question. And now, so there are forms of healthy attachment. They're temporary, though. It's like a child's attachment to its parents is a healthy attachment for that child. We, as babies, we actually need that attachment. And at different times in our life, we need certain attachments. But to think that that's the, uh, the essence of what we need is a mistake. To see that it's temporary or to see that it's, it's um, developmental, like for a baby, or for us at a certain age, maybe we need certain something, or attached to certain something. It's very helpful to see, okay, this is not permanent, which is the key piece about attachment, which is nothing is permanent. The child's not permanent, the parent's not permanent, and even that relationship is not permanent. But at that time, it's really healthy not only for the um, um, child to be attached to the parent, it's actually good for the parent to be a bit attached to the child. Not in a way of having to cling to the child, but to really care for the child. It's really good for the child if the parent really cares for the child. So, okay. Three out of eight. Okay, let's see if we can go. The other question about intention is a beautiful part of Buddhist practice. It's one of the Eightfold Noble Path. And so this is the path that the Buddha outlined and highlighted and said, look at these areas. These areas are important. If you want to awaken, if that desire fills your being, then here's a map. Here's a map, not a map where every street and every little alley and every little crook is laid out. No, here's a map for you to start to investigate this terrain. And the map included right understanding and right, um, um, right thought, uh, right aspiration, we could call it, um, um, which is also understood as right intention. And, and the area maybe simply put, is to really look at what is our intention in any moment. Because intention, and this is key, 
this is in Buddhist psychology, intention precedes action. Intention, intention precedes action. And actually, in the really, in the, in the Abhidharma, Buddhist psychology, which is a very kind of complex view of the nature of consciousness itself, they say every action, every, everything I'm doing, they would say, is preceded by an intention. And that if, if our mind was clear enough, bright enough, awake enough, we'd be able to see the intention before everything that happens. Generally, our mind is not that clear. But there is a capacity to look, to reflect, to pay attention. And especially with mindfulness practice, it starts to become not, not so much a mechanical reflection, but a kind of intuitive sensing where we can actually sense our intention. Is our intention skillful? Is it kind? Is it caring? Or are we acting out of reactivity? Is that where our intention is coming from? And again, it's not moralistic. It's not, oh, you're bad if you're reactive or you're angry or anything like that. It's no, will it lead to suffering? And they're talking about yours. Will it lead to suffering or happiness? That's really the basic question of Buddhism. And so that's really how intention plays is to start to recognize our intention because intention leads to action. And, and this is a place where we can cut the, what's cut, talked about is cut the wheel of suffering because we don't have to follow our intentions. We, we can have choice. We have choice about what we're going to act on. And so you could desire everybody, right? You know, everybody, let's say you're, you're quite free and everybody looks yummy to you. Because you know? everybody is yummy. And, and you could have a lot of desire. But if you, if you watch your intention, you might see that some of your intention is just to satisfy the animal needs. And, you know, that's not a bad thing either once in a while if it's with the right person and it's agreed and you all, you know, it's, it's clear. But also you might see that most of the time it's not just, it's not a great thing to do if you're married or something. And, you know, it's things like if you're in a committed relationship or if the other person is in a committed, you know, you can see it's just, it's going to be a problem. And so you get some choice about whether to act. You know, sometimes you'll choose to have a problem and sometimes you won't. <laughs> Usually you choose for a while and then slowly you start choosing not to. Usually we, we work best by, by trial and error, I think. So in the Buddha, and there's a beautiful sutta, which I'm going to talk about, about the Buddha teaching his son. Actually, it's not the one. There's three that he teaches his son. And the first one is all about intention. It's a beautiful sutta. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to talk about the one where he teaches his son about selflessness and the meditation practice. So, intentions. And then, and then um, one of the intentions, one of the ways we also understand is intention is where we incline the mind and heart. Like if we have intention towards hatred, that's what will happen. If we have intention towards freedom, that's what will happen. If we have intention towards just getting what we want, that's what will happen. 
and some will lead to freedom and happiness some will lead to probably some distress or disease loving kindness is a practice where we intend who asked me about loving kindness or a couple people who um, loving kindness is a practice is an intention practice we intend we offer our loving kindness to ourselves and to others we intend for the heart to um, know its richness to know its basis to know its source to know itself really because it is the basis of the heart loving kindness and it gets occluded it gets covered it gets scabbed it gets uh, wounded it gets um, um, hardened the heart gets hardened by our lives by our pains by our suffering and so the, the intention then is to actually let the heart rediscover its truth. And, and there's a variety of ways to do it. The most basic is to say certain phrases. Certain phrases. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free from suffering. May I be safe. May I be healthy. May I be well. May I be filled with loving kindness. And then offering it not only for oneself but for others. And if you do this practice, what's really amazing is it happens. The heart, you start feeling these feelings. It's a little weird. You know, you just do these phrases and first maybe dry or, may, or first often the opposite comes. Actually, hatred can come. Anger can come. The, the, whatever's including it will show itself appropriately. It's not a mistake. It's like clarifying water. The the silt rises to the surface and then the water becomes clear. It's the same with loving kindness. There'll be a purification as, as part of the process. We're, we're repurifying our hearts really. And then, and then it's amazing to see the capacity of the human heart, of our heart for love and for compassion, for care. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And it's limitless. That's the beauty. It's inexhaustible. It's boundless. The loving kindness, it's boundless. And this is where our imagination is important because often our enlightenment is limited by our lack of imagination. We can't imagine a heart that's boundless, that's limited. But the Buddha said this. He said it again and again. He said, if it were not possible, I would not teach it. If it were not possible, it w I would not teach it. And he taught the loving-kindness practice and the compassion practices, etc. And, and the challenge to the self or other is part of the practice. It'll challenge our ideas because then if there's a limit there. Well, I can't really give loving-kindness to this person or that person because they're, they're an idiot. Why should I give them any loving-kindness? I can't stand this person. So we see the limitation, but if we keep practicing, at some point that limitation dissolves and we see, oh, that person may be an idiot, but they still, the it doesn't matter. We can still love them. Here, here's what Ajahn Sumedho said. He said, you don't have to like people. You just have to love them. And there's a real difference between the two. You're not going to like everybody. Of course not. But what's amazing is you can love everybody. That's, that's amazing. And then, and so in some sense, 
loving kindness is one of the Buddhist rituals that people practice every day to deepen their practice. Or um, there's any number of kinds of bowing is a ritual. And so when I bow, like when I bow after the sitting, I bow and I make an intention when I bow. And it has to do with speaking. And, and um, my intention is that the Dharma speaks. That Eugene gets out of the way a little bit. And that the Dharma comes through. And so that's a, that's a very um, um, everyday Buddhist ritual to bow and to make intentions. You could just see in the, the morning, you wake up and you make an intention. May I be happy today. That's a beautiful Buddhist ritual to do. Or may, uh, may my heart open to all beings. Or may I just be a little kinder to myself today. That's a, that's a beautiful Buddhist ritual to make those kind of intentions. Or to bow. Or like my wife, who, who's very devotional, she actually gets up, bows, hits the ground. I do it after I've been practicing more intensively. I get, I get very devotional. But in my everyday life, it's not, not what happens to me. I feel it in my heart, but I don't act it. But on retreat, when I've been sitting after a week or two, I just bow all the time. I love to bow. Or chanting is a Buddhist ritual. And we don't, we don't do it much here, but when Kitty Sarah and Tanisara, our friends from South Africa, are coming to join, it looks like the team at, at IMCSF, and now they're just fabulous with chanting. Then I always want to chant. If I can be with them, I'll, I just want to chant. And you'll see, you'll, you'll come and, and spend time with Kitty Sarah and Tanisara, and it's cool. I mean, they know some, some cool chants, too, so... So, you know, all kinds of things, all kinds of ritual prayers, all kinds of prayers. You can say all kinds of prayers before eating, after eating, you know, um, gratitude, all kinds, there's all kinds of rituals. And it's a whole nother talk about why we don't do so much here, but some other time we'll go into that. Um, I, I, I'm going to just end with transformation. Um, because it was beautiful what she said. I don't know if everybody heard. She said, um, you know, she's seen that over time that the practice has transformed her. And that's a good way to look. Don't look day by day. Don't look moment by moment. If you want to see what the practice can do, give it five years. And see, see what you think and or maybe a year or two or three or four, and then you start to get a perspective. It's like um, Suzuki Roshi had this great image that just came to me. He said, it's like walking in the fog. You don't realize you're getting wet until you go in. You know how you walk through the fog and you don't, you don't really feel wet, you don't, and then all of a sudden you realize you've been soaked, you've been touched. And that's how the Dharma works, generally. There'll be some insights and powerful stuff happens, and that's great, that's fun. And, and it will happen. There'll be real transformative moments. But there's also a slow, steady, kind of wearing away of the identity, of the belief in a separate individual sense of self, in some reified idea, some idea of who we are, rather than the living actuality, the living um, uh, mystery of who and what we are.
And that mystery in its purity, which is also what wears away, which is the impurity 